0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets or, I think, the middle of the ends and the side aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. And if you're using one of these Bibles we provided, uh, that begins on page 839. And should be on the screen behind me as well. Would you please follow along as I read from Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our Father, it is a great privilege and a great joy to be together this morning. To be together as your people, to be gathered to worship you, and to be, deg- to be gathered to hear your voice, to hear what you have to say. God, this book is your word. It is you speaking to us, you addressing us in all of your love and your holiness and your goodness And we want to hear from you this morning. And so we ask that you would come and that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in middle school, if you wanted to be cool, and who didn't want to be cool in middle school, then the film you had to watch and like, or at least pretend to like, was The Usual Suspects. Now... I'm going to alert you, this is about to be a spoiler, so if you have been intending to see The Usual Suspects for 20 years and have not done it, this might be the time for earmuffs, but I think I'm beyond the sort of statute of limitations of no spoilers in a sermon. The Usual Suspects is a film about a crime that goes wrong and ends with this massive fatal explosion, and there are only two survivors— and it's it's told through the eyes of one of these survivors. Through his police interrogation, he's this small time con artist named Verbal Kint. And as he as he tells the story of this crime, he insists that the mastermind, the guy that the police should really be after, is this this brilliant, ruthless, legendary criminal named Kaiser Soze. And in the final scene of that of that movie, as Kint, this con artist, has posted bail and is leaving the police station, the detective suddenly realizes that the whole story had been an elaborate lie, that Kint was Kaiser Soze. He had him right in his office and let him slip right through his fingers. And the line from that movie that has endured, the line that sums it all up is this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was, do you know it? convincing the world that he didn't exist. The devil is not someone we give a lot of thought to today. He seems to belong to a pre-enlightened, pre-scientific world where people invented fanciful explanations for all the things they didn't understand. So behind every disease was a demon, and behind every crop failure was a curse— and, and, and we think that the devil belongs to that world, the world of superstition, not to our world, not to a world where we understand what's really behind the things that we can see. We know about bacteria and magnetism and photosynthesis and the subconscious. We could, modern Western people, could as easily believe in elves and dragons and Superman as in the devil. But hang on for a moment. Is it so hard to believe in the possibility of an e- evil spiritual influence in the world. We're not so far removed from the 20th century, which saw an entire nation of people just as rational as we are turn a blind eye to the murder of six million Jews. It was the century of Stalin and Pol Pot and Idi Amin, of lynchings in the American South, apartheid in South Africa. There is such a thing as evil, right? And all that we've learned, all we've discovered through science and philosophy, none of it has made us any better. There's something wrong with the world that we can't fix just through education. Do you really think that all the horrors of the world have merely natural causes? Or to approach it more personally, have you not had the experience of being strongly tempted to do something you knew was utterly wrong? And didn't it feel in that moment as if the temptation were coming almost, almost as though it was coming from outside of you? What if it's true If you're open to the possibility of God to an all-good, all-powerful, invisible spirit, then why not lesser spiritual beings, angels? And if you're open to the possibility of angels, why not the possibility that some of those angels have turned against God and now oppose him? What if it's true? The Apostle Paul believed it was true. And so, by the way, did Jesus. And they didn't just believe it was true, they believed it was important. They believed that in order to rightly understand your life, to accomplish what God's calling you to accomplish, to to live your purpose on earth, you had to come to terms with that reality. That's why this passage is in your Bible. It's for our good. And so in order to get the good out of this passage, we need to see four things in it. A reality, our responsibility, our defense, and our offense. First, a reality, personal, powerful, spiritual evil. Paul believes in the existence of the devil and demons, and he thinks you should believe in it, too. He tells us in verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers Over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He believes in personal, powerful, spiritual evil. The devil is personal. Paul says he has schemes, he's thinking, there's something he's trying to get done. And he's the leader of a great number of spiritual beings that Paul describes variously as being rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. They have power. They rule over things. They have authority. They can, they can make stuff happen. And they're evil. He calls them spiritual forces of evil. And everyone who is a Christian, who has trusted in Jesus, we have been brought into a conflict with them. He says we wrestle against them. Right? This isn't far range. Wrestling is, we grapple with them. It's intensely personal. It's close to us. God wants us to take this seriously. There are powerful personal, spiritual, evil spirits who are opposed to us. And that's why we need to be strengthened in the strength of God's might. We can't just go out there in our own strength and expect to accomplish anything against them. But maybe maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. So who is this person that Paul describes here as the devil or, other places, Satan? Scripture tells us that he's an angel. He was created good, but very early on he went bad. He became proud and led a rebellion of angels against God, and was cast out of heaven. He set himself as the leader of the opposition to God and his purposes. His work is to thwart God's work. So whatever God's goodness motivates him to accomplish, Satan's badness motivates him to block or twist or ruin. And he does that in three main ways. First, he does it through temptation. He entices us to disobey God. He makes sin look good. This is what he did in the garden right? when he came to Eve and said, If you'll just eat this fruit, it's going to be good for you. You're going to become like God. And he still does it today. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul instructed Christians, he said, they should resolve their anger quickly and give no opportunity to the devil, no opportunity to be tempted. He says that unresolved anger leaves you open to temptation of the devil, temptation to become bitter or to cultivate hatred in your heart. So first, temptation. The second way the devil opposes God's work is through deception, He spreads lies. He doesn't tell the truth about God or his ways. Jesus calls him in John 8, he calls him the father of lies. It all comes from him. He lies to us. He says that God couldn't really love us. He says we can't really be saved just by trusting in Jesus. There's got to be more to it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that people who teach lies about Jesus are actually serving the devil. They're doing just what he does. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He deceives. And the third way the devil opposes God's work is through affliction, whether it's through physical pain or persecution or just circumstances going against you, right? You, you may have heard the biblical story of Job, who was a man who was blameless before God, and God allowed Satan to afflict him terribly, because Satan believed that if he was afflicted, that he would turn from his faithfulness to God, and God knew that he wouldn't. The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus encountering people who have been afflicted by the devil. There's a story in Luke 13 where there's a woman who is, she's she's so bent over, her back is so deformed that she can't stand up straight, and when Jesus heals her, he says, he calls her a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. He afflicts he tempts and he deceives and he afflicts. Also, he can oppose God's good work in the world and in your life. Now, there are two dangers we need to watch out for here. One danger would be to think too much of the devil and his schemes, to, to see them behind everything, behind every time the car won't start or the children misbehave or you have a hateful thought. But the other danger is to think too little of him, to, to not take him seriously. Paul wants us to take him seriously. <clears throat> now there's this scene in the Empire strikes back, which is the second Star Wars movie. Luke Skywalker, it's always Star Wars with me. Luke Skywalker is in he's in Yoda's hut. He has to kind of crouch down to be in there because Yoda's so small, and he's trying to persuade Yoda to train him as a Jedi. And he can see that Yoda's like on the verge of giving in and he impulsively blurts out, "I'm not afraid." And some some of you nerdy guys like me, you don't have to concede that you're a nerd, but some of you know how Yoda responds to that. Do you remember? He says, Luke says, I'm not afraid. Yoda says, you will be. He's saying, you haven't yet reckoned with the difficulty of what you're getting into. Paul wants us to reckon with the difficulty of trying to obey God's ways, to reckon with the reality that we have supernaturally evil opponents against us. So we can see how much we need the strength of God to do what he's calling us to do. And what is God calling us to do? Secondly, our responsibility is to stand against the devil's schemes. Now Paul uses variations of the same verb four times in this passage. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to You may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. God wants us to stand, to withstand, to plant ourselves firmly against the schemes of the devil. How do we do that? Well, what are the schemes of the devil? His schemes are his attempts to thwart God's purposes. So we stand against his schemes by embracing God's purposes, we seek to do what God is calling us to do. And this is why this passage comes here at the end of Ephesians. Paul has been laying out for us this amazing vision of what God has done because of his love. We were dead, and God made us alive. We were guilty, and God forgave us. We were all alone, and God adopted us. We were alienated from one another, and God reconciled us. God made us his new people And he's given us a new way to live, a new way to relate to each other, a new way to relate to money, a new way to use our words, a new way to to do marriage and parenting and our work. And we're chomping at the bit saying, yeah, I want to live that new way, that new way that Jesus died and rose to make possible. And Paul is saying, that's great, but you can only do that in the strength of God because nothing good will go uncontested. Every every good resolve will be contested. You have an enemy. Nothing will come easily. You're going to have to stand and to withstand. You're going to need courage and perseverance and all the strength of God. God is calling us to stand, to resist, to reckon with the fact that we have a powerful, scheming, ancient enemy and to move forward anyway. Have you reckoned with this reality? Maybe after going through Ephesians, you've resolved to be more Tender and forgiving towards your spouse. That will not go uncontested. Your enemy will push all your buttons. He'll try to start a fight when you're already tired and irritable. Or maybe you've resolved to use your words. You want to be thankful with your words, not to gossip or complain. Do you know that your enemy will not let that go uncontested? That he will ramp up temptation just to see if he can make you go back to the old way of doing things and getting discouraged? Do you know that you will have to stand? So often when we try to make changes in our life, and we try to turn over a new leaf, we give up because it becomes so difficult. But if we have an enemy who seeks to thwart God's work in our lives at every turn, isn't difficulty exactly what we should expect? And once we've seen how difficult it will be to obey God's purposes, we'll see how much we need his provision for us. God is not calling us to anything he won't equip us for. That's why he says, Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, he's saying, all my might is here for you. All my strength is available to you. Come to me. All you have to do is ask. God wants us to equip, he wants to equip us with everything we need. And the way God describes this provision in this passage is he uses this phrase, the whole armor of God. He says it twice. If we're in a conflict, and we are, then what we need is protection and weapons. We need, we need to be equipped both to defend ourselves, but also to advance, to take the offensive. And so we're going to look at both of these in turn. What's God's provision for our defense? Third point, our defense is activating the gospel. And I'm going to explain what that means. But let's, let's take a closer look at this armor that Paul describes beginning in verse 14. He says, "Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God." So, four of these elements are mainly defensive. They're not they're not weapons against anybody. They're just equipment for your armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. And I think we're going to miss Paul's point if we get too detailed there. If we try to ask, well, why is truth the belt? And and how is righteousness like a breastplate? We want to come at it another way. So think about these elements, these four things that Paul has named. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation. What are they? They're all facets of a greater reality. The greatest reality, in fact, in the world They're all facets of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The gospel is the good news that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sinners can be counted righteous through faith in Jesus. The gospel is the truth about righteousness and faith and salvation. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that we need, what we need most in order to stand against the devil, in order to live the life God is calling us to, is to have the truth of the gospel made active in our lives, activated. It can't just be something we think about at church or we read about on the odd occasion that we pick up the Bible. We have to put it on. We have to clothe ourselves in it. We have to take it wherever we go. We have to live in it. So here's what I mean. Okay, so I, I have friends, and you probably have friends like this too, who have, who have become adoptive parents or foster parents of children who are coming out of really hard family backgrounds, maybe abusive backgrounds. And so if you've been close to a situation like that, you know that children coming into, a, into that home, they don't just lose their bad habits right away, right? They might lie impulsively to protect themselves. They might secretly hoard food, They might be really suspicious and react really badly to expressions of affection because they've been manipulated by those things in the past. Now, their objective reality has changed. They are out of that home. They are in a place where they are loved and where they're accepted, where food is never going to be withheld as a punishment. But that that new reality is not active in their life. They're still living as they did before, as if they were still back in that bad situation. The truth of their new, new reality hasn't been activated We need the truth of our new reality activated. When Jesus died and rose, he didn't just secure our salvation from sin and death, but he also set us free from the power of our enemies. Paul says in verse 12, you remember he says that he describes them as the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that sounds pretty intimidating until you remember what else is true in the heavenly places. In chapter 1, Paul said that we have every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion. He said that God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So, do we have powerful enemies? We do. But Jesus has died and risen and is seated at God's right hand with authority over our enemies. Jesus has already won the war, and this is just the mopping up period. He has triumphed over the devil, and the devil is trying desperate schemes, but Jesus is going to win the war completely, and we are with him. And so Paul is saying you have to take the truth of Jesus' victory and put it on you like armor and carry it everywhere you go. I think this will make more sense if you look at some of these specifics. So we have to live out the truth The truth, the belt of truth, the truth we have in the gospel. Until we met Jesus, we did not see the world as it really is. And because we didn't see the world as it is, because we didn't know the truth, we lived falsely. We lived in a way that wasn't right. But now we have the truth, the truth about God and ourselves and the right way to live. We have this book, which is truth. So when a voice whispers in your ear, God doesn't love you. He could never love someone like you. You can say, That's not true. God showed his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. We have to live out the righteousness we have in the gospel. Though we have all sinned countless times, everyone who trusts in Jesus is counted fully righteous, completely righteous in God's sight. God no longer counts our sins against us. And not only are we counted righteous, but God is working in us to make us righteous, to change us from the inside out. So when a voice whispers in your ear, you messed up again. God is so disappointed with you. You can say, no, I'm righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus has done, not my performance. When the voice says, you'll never live up to God's standard. So you might as well give in and just enjoy yourself. You can say, no, in God's strength, I can and will live a righteous life. We have to live out the faith we have in the gospel. Paul says that our faith is like this massive shield that we can hide behind that extinguishes all the attacks of the enemy, all the flaming darts. Through trusting him, through all of his promises, no lie or temptation or affliction can ever separate you from the love of God. So when you get sick or lose your job and a voice whispers in your ear, see, there's no God looking out for you. You can say, I don't live by what I see or by what I experience. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And lastly, we have to live out the salvation that we have in the gospel. It's like a helmet, Paul says. If you're a Christian, Paul says, you have been saved. He says it in in chapter two. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's past tense. It's completed. So when you're facing death, And a voice whispers in your ear, you haven't done enough. You've fallen short. It's hell for you. You can say, I have been saved by grace. And when I die, I will be with Jesus in paradise. Standing against the devil isn't magic. It doesn't take incantations or techniques. You have to know who you are in Jesus. You're loved. You're saved. You're righteous in his sight, and you have to live out that truth in confidence. This is why when we gather every week, we open this book. We need to know what we believe because the truth of the gospel is our defense against the enemy. Now, I have a friend who teaches at a seminary. He's, like, he, he teaches at a school that trains pastors, and he's also a massive Harry Potter fan, Okay, those two can fit together. And so he, on his first day at this job, his co-workers put this nameplate outside of his door, like it said his name, and then it gave his title, and this is the title on his nameplate. They said that he is the Assistant Professor of New Testament, Biblical Theology, and Defense Against the Dark Arts, which is one of the subjects of study at Hogwarts, and it's because Teaching the Bible equips people to defend themselves against the powers of darkness. The truth of the gospel is our armor. But Christianity isn't just defense. It's not just resisting. God has given us weapons for taking the war to the enemy. So lastly and briefly, our offense is advancing the gospel. The point of armor is to keep you safe as you advance, What does it mean for us to advance? How do we take ground in this fight? We can see the answer in the two pieces of offensive armor, offenses of equipment that Paul describes. He says in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what are shoes for, right? Shoes aren't just for hiding. Shoes are for advancing. They're for taking ground. And he says that the shoes we have is our readiness, the readiness we have in the gospel. Readiness for what? almost certainly readiness to speak the gospel. And here's why I think so. Paul concludes this section, and we're gonna look at this next week, by asking them to pray for him. And this is what he asked them to pray. He says, pray for me, verse 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's how Paul is taking the fight to the enemy. Knowing the gospel, loving the gospel, has made him ready to speak it. To others, And this lines up with the other weapon that God has given us, what he calls in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It's the word of God. The word, the proclamation of the truth, the good news about Jesus, that's the weapon that we have. We advance against our enemy by advancing the gospel. After all, how did we come to be free from his influence, free from his power? We did it through trusting the gospel, through trusting in Jesus. We were given a new life, a new righteousness, a new freedom. And we can bring that to others by telling them that good news, that Jesus died to forgive their sins, to rescue them from death, and they can receive it all through trusting him. This is the great work of history, speaking the gospel to people who don't know it, who have maybe never heard it, so that more and more people know the love and assurance and hope of belonging to Jesus forever. Your enemy will try everything to keep you from engaging in that work, but you have everything you need to stand firm. So here's the big idea that God is speaking to us this morning. Stand against the devil by activating and advancing the truth of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you are part of the greatest movement in the history of the world, the movement of ordinary men and women clothed with the presence and power of God speaking about what Jesus has done so their family and their friends and their neighbors are set free forever from the power of their enemy and become children of the living God. The only way we can do that is by so deeply knowing and living out the truth of the gospel that it becomes an impenetrable armor around us. Listen, we have an enemy. We have a host of enemies. They are powerful and evil and scheme against us, but we don't need to be afraid. We must not be afraid. The living God is with us. We must not be afraid, but we must be prepared. We must meditate on and mull over the truths of the gospel until they permeate our lives. Until we're so assured of God's love and acceptance, so confident, so confident in our righteousness before him, so full of joy in his salvation, that we're always ready for that good news to overflow from us into the people around us. And that won't happen without God's help. So let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we're sobered by it. And we're encouraged by it. And I confess, I think probably we confess, that we think too little of our enemy. We think too little of his schemes. And we ask that you would help us not to be obsessed with it, not to be consumed with it, but to be wary of him, to take every precaution by rejoicing in what Jesus has done, by thinking on his cross and resurrection, by thinking on the gift of righteousness that he offers us through faith. Jesus, we want to be so full of you that we are clothed with armor, that we are moving in your strength, and that we have these words of life to speak to others. And so I pray that you would help us. Help us to be the people who are so confident in your truth that we are eager for others to know and rejoice in it as well. And I pray that you would do that for the sake of Jesus and in his name. Amen.